Welcome to the first official episode of the B2B Zero to 10 podcast, formerly known as the B2B Founder Podcast. I am still your host, Brett Trainer, And on this podcast, our sole focus is to help you grow your business, your B2B business to $10 million in revenue. So whether you're a founder, an owner, a CEO, this is the podcast that's designed to help you break through those growth barriers. And today I welcome the Juice CEO and co-founder, Jonathan Gandoff to the show. The Juice is in the early stage of their growth journey. So I thought it would be a great time to have Jonathan on to talk about to date what they've done. And it's also a really interesting topic that I think all B2B companies need to be paying attention to is the content and content creation. And that's what the Juice is going to help companies do. So the, the two main themes coming out of this one is the value of content, which you've heard me talk about before on this podcast, and then also how they're approaching, the Juice is approaching their growth journey, their zero to 10 journey. And he's going to share some insights and some early learnings of what they've done. And, and we're also going to keep track of Jonathan and the Juice as they grow. So I think this is be a really interesting case study to show the different milestones as the companies grow. So anyway, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Welcome to the new version of the podcast. And like I said, if you like the content, please do subscribe on whatever podcast platform of your choice. You can also feel free to drop us some comments, reviews, or likes. Appreciate it. Now onto the interview. Hey, good morning, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Brett. Thanks for having me today. Uh, really excited to talk about all things The Juice and share with your audience. So thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited. Two things. One, I love B2B and startup founders. And two, you guys are taking on the content creation and process, which we'll, we'll dig into. So kind of a double feature podcast episode for our audience. They can learn and talk about your founder's journey. So so welcome. Anyway, what I like to do to, to kind of kick off the podcast is you can share with the audience a little bit about your background and obviously what you guys are doing with the juice and maybe how you started with that and we'll dig in. Absolutely. So it's a little bit of a wandering path and stop me if I begin to ramble, but very fortunate. I started my career in digital marketing at Exact Target here in Indianapolis. They were growing so quickly at the time. They were out of space in their offices. They shoved all the new people in the only place they had space, which fortunately for me was about 20 feet outside of the CEO's door, which I think they had intentionally kept empty, but they had no option. It's probably good for me at that point of my career to be on task, but very informally got to know Scott Dorsey, the CEO going to the printer, going to the kitchen, coming and going during the day. And I'll kind of come back to that story at the end here, but stayed through the acquisition by Salesforce. We became the Salesforce marketing cloud. I was really happy there. I had a side project that I swore was just that little passion project that was starting a brewery with three or four friends. And that became too big, too real, too fast. And it still sounds crazy to say out loud, but I left Salesforce to start a craft brewery. And why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? In uh, Northern Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. Did that for four years. We took it from zero to about 10 million in revenue annually. Four states, 10 major markets. They're still growing. Really awesome brand, really awesome people. Uh, so it's fun to be just their biggest fan now. But after four years in the beer industry, I decided I didn't want to spend my entire career in beer. Had an opportunity to find me back in software that was at Springbuck, a healthcare analytics company out of Indianapolis. 
So I made the very smooth transition from craft beer to healthcare. Spent two years there leading marketing and business development, learned a lot, not only about the healthcare space, but also just leadership and leading marketing and business development. It's kind of come full circle. Scott Dorsey reached out to me in March of 2020. That was the first week that the world had gone remote and he just wanted to catch up. We had gotten to know each other, like I said, informally. And so we, we spent a lot of time talking about the world going remote. And then I remember at the end of the call, he asked, well, would you be interested in High Alpha Opportunities, the venture studio that he and some others have started? And I I remember telling him I was really happy where I was at, but I'm always going to take his call just because I respect him so much. And I remember he ended the call by saying, well, that's really good because we like to hire happy people. I said, oh man, I probably just walked right into that trap just as he had planned. So he introduced me to another high alpha partner about a month later. We discussed an idea they had already kind of concepted, ran through a sprint week. I thought they were just looking for feedback. They ended up looking for a marketer to lead the business. And through some exploration and some back and forth there, it just became an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So I joined in July of last year, about a year ago this time. Okay. Uh, kind of pause there before jumping into the juice and happy to answer any questions about the background or I can keep rambling about the business. <laughs> really helpful. And I do have questions, believe it or not. And one, I'd like to go back to the brewery, if you don't mind, just because I do like my IPAs and I do like the craft beers and testing. But the one thing that I've noticed past 12 months, maybe even two years, the volume of craft breweries that are out there and there's some really good beers, but how do you cut through the noise? Obviously, you guys were able to successfully do that. You're just curious. Were you just a little bit ahead of the curve or did you have to kind of battle your way through, call it the noise, but just the volume of beer that's out there? That's a great observation because we started in March of 2015. And when we were starting, we felt like, man, we are really late to the game. And then in 2017, we're like, man, we're really fortunate we were early to the game because that trajectory just kept going in terms of number of craft breweries. It was just wild. The way we cut through the noise, I think this is still the way to cut through the noise. And it sounds biased for me, a marketer to say, but I truly believe it is brand. Like you have to stand for something nowadays in the craft beer industry. In the early days, it was just craft. It was different enough that people went for that. But now there's so many craft options. I think it's really a marketing exercise. So I can tell you several of the founders of that business came from the technology side. And our hypothesis was that there's growing technology industry, growing craft beer industry, but nobody's connecting the two. And we felt like that Venn diagram was pretty big. So we talked about being born in a garage and we meant that both from a blue collar perspective. That's where hard work happens happens, but also the kind of white collar, that's where a lot of entrepreneurship happens. The most tangible example of that that I can give is we opened at 8 a.m. Tuesday through Friday. We had a coffee program and we treated the tap room really as a co-working space, free gigabit Wi-Fi. We actually had a business start in the tap room and actually grow out of the tap room. And I think that really benefited us early on and really helped us kind of stand out and grow very quickly. Yeah, I think having to stand for something isn't just in the craft. I think that's everything. I've had a number of folks on recently, Gav Gillibrand, he's out of the UK, but he's got like 37,000 followers and he's a fitness and nutrition coach. On LinkedIn, he's got that many followers, but he's like, I don't appeal to everybody, man. This is my approach. This is my philosophy. I think other stuff's bullshit a lot of the time and it's working. I had Michael Sheehan, the hype man on talking again. If people don't know you have a good product or service, do you really have a good product or service? So you're ahead of that curve thinking we have to take a stand, something that we believe in. You can't be all things to all people or you won't be anything to anybody, right? Exactly. That's something I say a lot. That's such a major trap, especially for marketers. You know, you see all these different pain points and you're like, oh, we can solve for that and that and that. And you try doing all of that and you do none of it well. 
that is, I think, one of the biggest traps in marketing. Yeah, I think so. And I'm trying to get better. You'll get to know me one-on-one. I'm very opinionated and have, hey, this is the way I believe. And But my writing tended to be more general that say, hey, it's okay. If not. But now I'm starting to be like, I don't actually believe what I'm doing. So this is what I have. You don't believe it, that's fine. But yeah, it, it was counter, not to say counterintuitive, but a little bit that stand up for what you believe in and you'll find the right followers. So that's good. So two, before we get to the juice, I do want to touch on high alpha folks. I find that model fascinating and VC, I guess we can call them venture capital accelerator out of Indianapolis, which I'm always happy to see the Midwest starting to promote these types of opportunities. So maybe just a little bit of background on high alpha. Obviously we shared how you got connected with them, but give us a little bit of background on that because I think people find that interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting model. Indianapolis is very fortunate to have them here in the community. I consider myself very fortunate to be a part of the network here. But so High Alpha is a venture studio. There's kind of three components to it. There's the capital arm, which is kind of traditional VC. They invest in a broad range of companies. But then that capital arm also supports their studio function. So their studio function serves as uh, maybe an accelerator is the most direct comparison in the space. Uh, So they are constantly starting companies in the studio. They run those companies or those ideas through what they call a sprint week four times a year. During that sprint week, they'll try to validate four or five concepts or devalidate them. They'll, They'll kind of get to the end of sprint week and they'll say, okay, this is worth further pursuit or further validation before we pursue it. Or you know what, there's not anything there. Maybe it's just a feature for another company. So they've launched about 30 companies through that model. That's the model that the juice was born out of. I actually wasn't a part of that sprint week for even building a team or finding founders. Their team kind of validates the idea. So very fortunate for that. And they actually have an innovation arm now as well. That's the most recent arm that's actually helping really large corporations or enterprises fuse kind of the startup energy or startup model into their business. So a lot of kind of studio type of projects within larger corporations. It's a really cool model and something that they're having a lot of success with. And I think the timing couldn't be better because a lot of these B2B companies are on the verge of being disrupted or are being disrupted. You know, the pandemic helped accelerate that change, right? And those legacy companies are going to struggle the market strategies, the innovation. Yep. So I think that the timing is, is going to be perfect with that. So now are most of these companies seed stage, obviously some are even pre-seed, right? If they're ideas. Right. Yeah. So they've got pre-seed, seed, they've got everything up to companies out of the studio be acquired. They actually just announced, I know it's the day we're recording, they just announced one of the first studio companies they started was acquired today. So that's really exciting. Then they also have companies that I think are on series C, series D. Even. And it's really awesome because you, as a founder, you've got this community of 25 plus other founders that almost no matter what problem you're facing, somebody else has been through that same challenge. And it's just an incredible network to be able to reach out and say, how did you deal with this? How did you think about this? Who should I talk to about this? That's really the magic that happens inside the studio. Yeah, that makes sense. And last question, you know, geographic specific, are these all indie-based companies or Indiana-based companies or a little bit of kind of what's the target for that? Yeah, so I think High Alpha takes a great amount of pride in supporting Midwestern entrepreneurship. That said, it is not exclusive to that. And I think early on, I don't want to speak too much on their behalf, but early on, it was indie exclusive. They started to broaden that since I think over the last 16 months, kind of everyone's rethought what does an HQ location even mean? Now they have founders on the East Coast, West Coast, obviously here in Indy, all over the Midwest. So I think they're pretty agnostic when it comes to location. 
tradition, but with a uh, maybe Midwestern slant to that. Flavor to it, yeah. Yeah, I think they take a lot of pride in that. Yeah, I had Tim McLaughlin on a couple times. He's a partner at Co-Founder Capital, and they're out of North Carolina. And when I first met him, he's like, no, only in North Carolina-based companies. So they're in the triangle down there. I think they're on their third fund you know, raised, I think, 42 million in the last one. And literally every one of those companies has come out of North Carolina. I wouldn't think the pipeline's that big, but he's like, yeah, no, (laughs) there's enough ideas coming out of here and seed. And so they've been really super successful, even more hyper-focused in an area. So I've been doing some of my own fundraising research and there's a lot of that out there that I'm always just amazed. Like I came across one that was Minnesota. And then you start to look at their portfolio and you're like, oh, that company's from Minnesota, especially now with the world kind of shifting remote. There's a lot of startup energy, no matter where you look. Yeah. Awesome. 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 Yeah. Exact target is a perfect coming in out of Indy, right? So people don't think Minneapolis says that hub, but there's been a lot of really good stories that have come out just starting too. So let's get into the juice. So you kind of mentioned you weren't there for the sprint week. So, you know, how did one get connected? And then let's walk through that, that journey a bit. So, all right, you're now in charge or co-founder. Let's talk about that story a bit. Cause I think that's interesting. Absolutely. So they ran, uh, at the time, the business was actually called Fathom. Um, They ran Fathom through a sprint week in February of 2020. I know some of the high alpha network, I'm connected with some of them. One of the exercises they often do in a sprint week is they'll send out a survey to people who kind of fit the persona for what they're trying to get. I submitted some feedback in that survey. That was that. When Scott connected me with another partner, he was actually asking me about a lot of my feedback in that survey. So I was just thinking he was kind of looking to continue to validate the idea. I said the pain point they were solving for really resonated with me. That's something I had felt throughout my entire career. And that was that we've all gotten very, very good at producing content, creating content, but we've not gotten near as good at distributing content. Right. And so I was providing feedback around that topic and just like, if you guys can figure out how to solve that pain point, like you're going to have a really successful company on your hands. Christian Anderson was the partner I was talking to and I'll never forget. I've gotten to know Christian better now and it doesn't surprise me as much anymore, but it was minute like 28 or 29 of a 30 minute call. I was just offering, you know, continue to want eyes or ears on this idea. Let me know. I'm always happy to provide feedback. I remember he was like, well, how would you feel about leading the business? I think I literally laughed out loud like at him. So I was like, I'm not sure like have a lot to learn. That's not what I was anticipating out of this call or what I'm looking for right now. But we continued that conversation for about an hour longer, I think. And then we continued to talk about the idea back and forth for two or three months until we kind of got to the point where it's like we both had a lot of energy around the idea, the problem, maybe a little bit of alignment around the vision. Kind of said, you know what, if we're going to do it, let's do it. And so I took on the opportunity in July. And this is the biggest benefit, I think, of High Alpha. We knew that was a really difficult time, July of 2020, to start a business in the middle of a global pandemic. So what the high alpha support system and kind of their backing allowed me to do was I spend the first four months talking to as many marketers as possible. My goal was talk to 100 marketers in 100 days. We, I think, did 120, 140. We ended up losing count, but they continued to validate that pain point. And to the point where we started to have some of those conversations like just very organically evolved into sales conversations so we started thinking about, all right, it's time to start building product or at least some tech-enabled service around this pain point. And then in January, we felt like we kind of knew where the world was going. We had enough validation that we started building the team, the software, some of our go-to-market efforts for about four or five months, focused on building all of those motions. 
And then we launched early access in July of this year, and we're launching with high alpha in August, and then we'll continue to grow from there. Yeah, great stuff. And let's go back to the conversations because I love the idea of uh, prospect, right? At this point, they're not even customer conversations. And was there a specific target market you were going after to solve? Well, let me take one step back. I want to get back to that, but you mentioned passionate about the problem. We talked about the distribution. What was the vision? How did you think you were going to solve that problem at the time? Or was that the first step to go talk to marketers to find out what the problem is? Just curious how you connected those two dots. Christian, when he first pitched the idea to me, he would often reference the IMDB of content marketing, which I thought was cool. I saw some value in, but as he and I kind of went back and forth, we're like, man, there's really the ability to be something more than that. And so the vision kind of ended up shifting into or molding into everything we do on the consumer side. You and I as consumers, as humans, is curated for us, whether it's TV, music, movies, the extreme example I always give is dating, right? You used to sit at the bar and hope you locked eyes with the right stranger. Now you can open up an app on your phone and you're literally curating other human beings into your life, yeah. which sounds crazy to say out loud, but that's just how second nature that curation has come. But when you are thinking about B2B content, how you're expected to find B2B content is through Google search. You go to a Google search, you're not necessarily getting the best content. You're getting the people who have the deepest ad budgets or the most sophisticated SEO tools. If you find the content you're looking for, it's behind a form. You have to fill out that form. Then you get hit up with sales prospecting. And so it's a really kind of gnarly experience on the B2B side. But the same people who enjoy those consumer experiences are the same people who work in the B2B industry. Right. So why has that space not caught up? So really our vision, I feel like it's so classic B2B tech to say you're like something for something else. Our vision, I always say, is like Spotify for B2B content or even Netflix for B2B content. Based off your profile, your role, your industry, your company, we can curate the right B2B content for you, help you make better purchasing decisions, help you advance your career, help you do industry research, competitive research, et cetera. Uh, so we really want to bring that familiar consumer experience into the B2B space. Uh, that's super interesting. I do want to dig into that too. But and now let's go back to those prospect surveys or conversations that you were having. You know, Was it a Fortune 500 enterprise level company, startups? Who were you talking to? And I think this is such an important area that so many founders and even small business owners don't take the time to do this that I want to spend just a little bit of time to get it, your your perspective and maybe the how and the why you went down that path. Absolutely. It was the most impactful thing we could have done at that stage uh, and still proves to be valuable. So we were looking for B2B SaaS, um, I would say marketing teams of like 10 plus selling sales or marketing solutions. A lot of times I was looking for like demand generation leader or content marketing leader, if not a marketing leader. That was actually one of the questions we tried to figure out through discovery was the kind of the structure of marketing teams of that size. Content marketing is a really interesting thing where sometimes people view it as pure like brand play and it is more about like copy and messaging and tone. Other times people view it as pure like demand generation where it is form fills, conversion and all of those tactics. So that was part of the discovery we did. So we had a set of questions, we ran them through and I kept notes in a spreadsheet that made it very easy to kind of tabulate some of the responses and understand some patterns. But it was just sitting down and listening was by far the most valuable exercise we've been through. What were some of the biggest surprises come out of? Did you change your kind of, not maybe not direction, but what were some of the things that jumped out? 
I'll say one thing that I learned maybe about 10 calls in that I, I was fortunate I got some feedback on is I'd always ask, what's your biggest pain point as it pertains to content marketing? And I'd get a good answer maybe a vanilla answer. I was talking about that with one of my high alpha colleagues and he said, always ask two follow-up questions on pain point. I started doing that. They'd explain that pain point. I'd, I'd pick at that, kind of try to pick at that scab and go one layer deeper. And then they'd answer that. And I'd ask at least one more follow-up question to the end where it got, it became like a very emotional or like visceral reaction. They were having to that pain point. And that's when I knew we had something good. And what was surprising was that I was expecting a hundred different pain points across a hundred different marketers. It was all a lot of the same stuff, that content distribution challenge, resourcing challenges. What's the purpose of content marketing? Is it brand? Is it demand? Those were a lot of the themes. And then the last thing I'll say that was eye-opening and a little surprising, one of the questions I'd always ask at the end is when you're looking for inspiration or brands that you aspire to be like, who do you reference in the B2B space? And 80% of the time, the exact answer was, well, you know, actually I look at a lot of B2C brands. And like, that was really eye-opening to me is that like, we all draw inspiration from B2C and consumer experiences, but we don't imitate those experiences. And so that really uh, became, I think, a big opportunity in our messaging and how we build the platform. Yeah, it's interesting. And like I said, I've come 30 plus years, 30 years, I can't say plus years yet, but you know, in the B2B space, kind of bouncing between enterprise and startups and just to see the transition that started to take place. And I worked for a, a digital agency in the last corporate role. And that was the earlier days of Facebook ads, right? And even Google ads where you could push transactional type of deals through because it was new, it was cutting through the noise. Now, man, if you don't have the brand, the awareness, the education, it's, it's a cost of doing business. And so many companies struggle with this. And just one other interesting point I had, Norman Crowley on, he's an Irish entrepreneur founder, but he's taken on climate change. He's had a couple of other successful companies. Like, so, all right, it's the last five years. What's the biggest thing that's changed for you as far as, as go to market? He's like, well, I used to be able to get away with having and hiring the best salespeople, right? They, they're good in the boardroom. They can sell. He's like, I've replaced those folks with 30 plus content creators, right? Distribution still the challenge, right? How do you get in front of people? But it was interesting. He's like, and now I broke my sales process into micro processes where I can put certain people for certain aspects. And it's, I'm not going to be able to scale it. I'm paraphrasing now, scale the business, you know, with salespeople, I need to do it with content. So yeah, I'm not surprised the research showed that, but I'm glad it's more and more people are starting to understand it's not a nice to have anymore, right? So it's interesting. The timing for us starting a content business was really interesting because I always joke like content has had this glow up during the pandemic because all of a sudden marketers didn't have events, didn't have trade shows, didn't have field marketing. They weren't sending packages to offices. All of a sudden there was a lot of freed up budget. And one thing they could do is content and digital advertising, right? So all of a sudden, a lot of energy, effort, and attention that I think a lot of content marketers had been begging for for years was very quickly and abruptly shined on them, right? So we benefited from that a little bit. And people are saying, okay, 2020, like everything changed. But one thing we know we've gotten better at or we know works now is content marketing. We're going to invest more into that into 2021. The flip side of that is that's only creating more noise, which makes it harder for marketers to cut through. So it's a really interesting cycle and relationship that I think content in general has been through in the last 12, 16 months. Yeah, I think it's back to even like podcasting. People say, hey, it's too late to start a podcast. And like, 
no, there's like, like 2% or, I mean, it's such a small number, it seems noisier, but I think even with the content, right, there's gonna be a lot more of it, but the folks that do it well, do it right and get it in front of the right people will continue to have an advantage for what, five years probably still. I mean, I don't think the market, I don't think we can take something like folks have done for 30 years and fundamentally change it in 12 to 18 months. You know, the pandemic has forced them to think differently. I've just been in those bigger organizations for too long to know, you know, how it works. So you're absolutely right. It's good content still resonates. Right. And I, I think that's the challenge is creating good content, finding your audience and getting your content from them. That's always going to be hard. We hope to make that easier at the juice, but that content will still win. It's super interesting. So now you guys are transitioning out of, I don't want to call it a beta or where you're at early stage. So one, who is your new target audience, right? You talk to a bunch of folks. Are you picking an industry, a vertical or a size one? And then two, what is the, how are you solving that problem? You touched on a little bit, but maybe we could spend just a little time on those two things as you guys are starting to, I want to say all in, but open the floodgates, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. At the end of the day, we are a marketplace business uh, to a certain degree. We need both content consumers on the platform as well as content marketers on the platform. We want to prioritize the consumer experience. We think that's part of what's happened in B2B marketing. Everything's been built for the marketer. So we want to build our platform for the consumer. So we're focused on growing an audience of as many content consumers as possible. We had over 3,000 people sign up for our wait list going into early access. So I think that shows there's an appetite for a better content consumer experience. But then on the flip side, we need content marketers with content on the platform. And so what we're trying to do initially is we want to eventually be all B2B content. We're starting with just the sales and marketing verticals. That's still a really big universe of content. We're fortunate we've used G2 as a kind of proxy for how we categorize content. So we've got a list of all the G2 sales and marketing brands. We're starting with some of the brands that we admire as a team, plus some brands that have over a hundred views and over four and a half star ratings, kind of call that our honor roll. So as of now, we've got over 100 brands, over 3,000 members on the wait list, and we continue to grow both of those. And what that will allow us to do with both of those audiences is pair the right content with the right consumer and the right consumer with the right brand. And hopefully that leads to really high quality, really well-educated brand relationships and you know maybe down the road, some new customers as well for the marketers. So that's the goal, but we need both of those audiences to be really successful. Yeah, I love that idea. And I'm seeing more of these marketplace and maybe the name will change, but yeah, right. You get to draw demand from a couple different sides, but everybody wins if you you pull it off. And I think it's super interesting. Anything else about the journey? Anything you would have done differently to this point? I know you're only about a year in or a little less than a year in. Is there anything, maybe lessons learned? I think we touched on the talk to the customers, really understand from their perspective where the pain points are. Anything else we should know about that journey? Anything I would have done differently, I've learned so much. I'm a first time founder, so it's hard to like compare. Oh, well, last time I did this, I I wish I would have done that again or something. I think one of the biggest learnings for me was your founding team members, you know, whether or not they're a co-founder by title or not is just so important. I mean, I have realized that it is really just a use case and hire smart people and get out of the way. 
and the impact that those first employees have is just so massive. Um, we've just got an incredible team. I thank my lucky stars every day that we've got the team that we have. And it's been amazing to watch them come together. And I really view my role as removing barriers for them, getting all of them aligned, making sure they're in lockstep or making sure there's healthy tension where there needs to be tension in the business and uh, just moving things forward. So that's really been a big, big learning for me. That's such a good reminder too, right? You could have all the smartest people in the world, but they're not aligned and looking at the same direction. It's probably not going to work, right? Especially at that early stage, you need everybody pushing in that same direction. And maybe what a good transition is, you know, what's next for you guys, right? So you got the idea, you've had the early ad, you got some success and maybe more of an execution stage, right? In the next six to 12 months, is it a lot more hiring? Whatever you're comfortable sharing, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. So we are, depending on when this episode gets released, we are formally launching with High Alpha on August 17th. So they've got a lot of marketing and PR and digital promotion efforts that go into announcing their companies. Uh, So we'll do that on August 17th with them. Again, extremely transparently, we're starting a seed round fundraising effort. I'll be going heads down into that in August. And our goal with that round of fundraising is to find the people that want to help us build that content consumer side of the marketplace. Myself, our team, High Alpha, we all have a lot of experience in the brand side. That's very traditional, like B2B SaaS sales, go to market motions, marketing. And we've got a lot of experience there. And so we're looking to bring some experience and resources into the business that'll help us grow that content consumer audience. We want to be at 20,000 members by the end of the year. We're getting pretty formulaic about how we acquire those members at this point. So we're confident in that goal, but it's going to take some resources and hiring and capital to be able to do that. So I'm looking forward to that process. I think our vision resonates. We've got some early wins in terms of beta customers and people engaging with the platform. So fundraising and then setting some big, scary goals and getting after the team. That sounds awesome. And one thing we didn't talk about, you know, I think this could be an interesting from where you are in your journey, you're going to hit a number of phases that focus heavily on B2B startups and small businesses looking to get to 10 million, right? So maybe what we can do on a quarterly basis is just do a quick touch base with you to see where you're at and we can share with the audience kind of your journey going through this program. I think it's interesting. I said, I think you did a lot of the groundwork up front, but now you've got a lot of heavy lifting as they say. And and lastly on that, I think from a timing perspective, that the podcast is probably slated to go live around that week. So (laughs) the week after the 17th, so we can talk about it after you went live. I love that. Yeah, we'd love to provide updates, kind of keep sharing our story. I'd love to be sure we're sharing the podcast on our platform, getting it in front of a large audience of content consumers. These types of conversations are what energize myself and the team. And these are the types of conversations we want to share with our audience, not only our own conversations, but great other podcasts, right? And just making that really high quality B2B content easier for content consumers to find. Exactly. And that'd be awesome. So, all right. So we touched on a lot of the business, but one question I ask every guest that's been on the podcast, which is now I think over 115. So no pressure. <laughs> what is one thing, Jonathan, that you would highly recommend? And I, I'll qualify that it could be professional or personal. Kind of what's top of mind for you right now that you think others should know about? Great question. You know, we did get a chance to talk right before the podcast. This is the one question you warned me about. And I was prepared to talk through that experience I shared where we talked to a hundred customers and really just listened as much as possible. But we spent a lot of time on that during the podcast. I would just double down on that. I got through that process and obviously had a ton of great information. We actually wrote a blog post. I shared the template for those conversations, how I kept notes. Uh, maybe we can link to that in the show notes. But you know, really I got to the end of that experience. I felt 
a little silly that I hadn't done that at previous stops in my career. I've been in marketing roles my entire life, my entire career, I suppose. And you always say I should talk to customers or I should talk to prospects. I should spend more time listening to them. And it always just finds its way to the bottom of your priority list. Or it's always that one thing that just kind of gets bumped. Or if you do do it, you just kind of rush through it or check the box. And I would strongly encourage anybody you know, no matter role or industry, block time, make time to listen to your customers, your prospects, your persona, do it in bulk. And I think that's the best way to find the common themes. I think any single conversation can have some randomness to it. But once you do it 10 times, 15 times, 20 times over, you'll start to recognize themes. And then you can take that to numbers 20 through 40. And all of a sudden those turn into different types of conversations around sales or partnership or growth. That's really the professional one. One thing I would recommend. Personally, I, I'm so fortunate this is built into high alpha, but find your support system. You know, other CEOs, other founders, other people in your role that have been through what you've been through. I think it's maybe cliche advice, but find the people you want to be and tie yourself as closely to them as possible. Before I even took on this opportunity, I talked to a few other CEOs and founders in the high alpha model and just got really awesome advice around there's imposter syndrome for everybody. Everybody feels that we're all figuring it out in real time. We're all learning. And that's just so assuring. And then obviously you've got your personal support system as well. For me, that's my wife. Uh, you know, we talked about when I took on this opportunity, this wasn't like my business. Uh, it was really our business. And we still talk about it that way. You know, a lot of times we use the words like we and our and us. And so I'm really fortunate for that. But, you know, no matter what, just find your support system. And I guess the common thread between both of those is professional and personal. The common thread there is listen. That's something I wish I were better at is listening. I'm very extroverted. I'm a marketer. I like to talk. I like to present. But I have found my most beneficial learnings professionally and personally when I just shut up and listen. Maybe ironic advice to give on a podcast where I do a lot of talking, but that would be my advice today. No, I love it on both accounts. And with the customers, just don't do it once, right? Build it into the, the DNA of your organization as you start to grow. Because I've been with some larger companies and you try to do it after the fact. You can still do it, but the effort level to make that part of a repeatable process gets much more difficult. And, you know, whether it was at a time, it was a start, I mean, probably about a $10 million company at the time and brought somebody into met, even not just from customer and the insights and talking about it, but we looked at it from a customer experience standpoint. And that was invaluable. Right. We found that the customers and prospects that went through pre-sell through onboarding, you know, felt they were like they were dealing with four different companies as they went through the process. Everything yeah. was a handshake and a handoff. And we just weren't big enough for that. So right. I, I wholeheartedly endorse your your two. I think this support system is also so important. You know, shameless plug. I actually co-host a, another podcast. It's actually more of a YouTube called Mentor Musings, right? With somebody else that mentors startup founders and talk about that all the time. Just having somebody to talk to, even if it's not critical advice, but to bounce ideas off of at any stage of your career just makes sense. And honestly, I can't recall having that advice in the 115 or 16 episodes that'll be prior to this. So I appreciate that. It's one thing you would recommend on both sides. So yeah, well, that's great. Happy to help. I agree. I think it's cathartic just talking to people and on the customer side, like don't overthink those conversations. I know there's different templates and jobs to be done or different types of surveys you can do. I would say just get on the phone or get on the Zoom and just ask a few questions and ask follow-up questions to that and listen. That was, you just got to jump in head first. So yeah. 
No, I love it. Love it. And like I said, we will link to that in show notes. We'll put it out there if people are interested. And like I said, we will touch base with you maybe on a quarterly basis to see how the journey's going. I think we, we timed this right so we can, as long as you're good with good and the bad as you go through this and be open, I think it'd be fascinating. I see more good than bad. So there's certainly some of both and certainly enough to talk about. Yeah, that's awesome. And if people want to connect with you, learn more about you, learn more about the company, what best place for them to connect with you? Thejuicehq.com, probably the jumping off point. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and then obviously that website will link right into our platform where you can start exploring B2B content. You can reach out to me directly, jgandoff at thejuicehq.com. Always happy to chat, always happy to collaborate, bounce ideas off each other, or just listen. Awesome. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Jonathan, I appreciate it very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Like I said, we'll be keeping tabs on you, but until then, have a great rest of your day. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. Thanks.